calmly apply the brakes. This is the Poetry Slowdown Podcast, presented with joy and vigor by Dr. Barbara Mossberg. How you matter to a tree, and for that matter, everything. Clue, it's the poetry in you. If everything is alive, Ian Chillog, E equals MC squared, Einstein, things must be sung, sung themselves, Emerson, then A, you are alive, B, you are everything, C, you are a song. We're all in this together like penguins and bats singing our song to find our way along, know how we belong to each other and this earth. Is your world singing and ringing? Are you to a tree and all things? You are indispensable, the song and the singer. And I'm talking to you, O oh listener, for whom I have cast a pod, who has slowed down for the poetry slowdown to consider poetry in our lives, in our everyday. It turns out your mother loved it, your father wrote it, your friend frames it, and your colleague memorizes it. Who knew? You thought it was just you, this eccentric resonance with the oddly stated, quirkly reasoned, dapper and dappled language put into girdles and tuxes, plaid flannel bathrobes, hooded, buttoned, stressed, pressed, rested, strangling, wrangled, oddly fitting, evocative, provocative, wordplay that, frankly, for the world at least, is life and death. Poetry, poetry. And herein lies an answer to that question fretting you all morning. I know how trees matter to me. Let me count the ways. But do I, how can I, matter to them, or for that matter, to our world and you're not alone. In your existential crisis, you're with your poetry slowdown, our program laying out the case for the need for humans on earth. We've been guilting ourselves lately, our roles in climate change, pollution, species extinction, and so we know we matter in a catastrophic way. But let us consider how we also matter in a redeeming, life-saving way, a way on which the world depends and perhaps for which we were brainwired, purposed, here, here. Our poetry slowdown, the news feed you need, the news you heed, the news without which men die miserably every day. William Carlos Williams said that. Hashtag poetry now more than ever. Hashtag saved by poem. And if you hear the wind in the willows, that's the trees cheering for you, your inner poet, to think on them 
through the Poetic Lens. I'm your host, Professor Barbara Mossberg, and we're produced by Zappa, that Zappa, Johns. Oh, we ain't got a barrel of money. Maybe we're ragged and funny, but we'll travel along singing a song side by side. Our holiday has been simply a friendly sign of the survival of the love of letters amongst the people too busy to give to letters anymore. As such, it is precious as the sign of an indestructible instinct. Perhaps the time is already come when it ought to be and will be something else when the sluggard intellect of this continent will look from under its iron lids and fill the postponed expectation of the world with something better than the exertions of mechanical skill. Our day of dependence, our long apprenticeship to the learning of other lands draws to a close. The millions that around us are rushing into life cannot always be fed on the sere remains of foreign harvests. Events, actions arise that must be sung, that will sing themselves. Who can doubt that poetry will revive and lead in a new age as the star in the constellation harp, which now flames at our zenith, astronomers announce, shall one day be the pole star for a thousand years Poetry Slowdown. I know this sounds like an op-ed in today's news, but that is Ralph Waldo Emerson rousing us in 1836. And this is Professor Barbara Mossberg, Dr. B, rousing us right now with our Poetry Slowdown produced by Zappa, that Zappa Johns. And we're casting pod on the central coast of California. Questions arising from Emerson's essays. Things that must be sung. Things that sing themselves. As if the world around us is music is a song, is lyrics, as if singing could save us? What do we know of our earth and ourselves that must be sung, that sings itself? I'm thinking now of the podcast by Ian Chalak, Radiotopia's Everything is Alive. He's a producer and writer living in Brooklyn. He produced NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And he co-created and hosted the NPR podcast, How to Do Everything. And he's worked on videos for the New York Times and the literary magazine he contributes to called A Public Space. And you know poetry slow down when I say no place safe from poetry. He's recorded episodes of a podcast about a post-apocalyptic public radio pledge drive, 
besieged by pestilence and death he can't figure out what to do with. So you can listen to his podcast at everythingisalive.com. One of my favorites is Lewis, the can of cola. He's an exquisite sensibility. He's created by Lewis, an actor, and it's all extemporaneous. And since he was drunk by Ian Chalag, I miss him. The idea of everything is alive, I think, is pure poetry. It's essence, metaphor. We understand one thing in terms of another. That's just human understanding, cognition, neuroscience. But then Einstein came in with E equals MC squared, saying that everything is not only like each other, but is each other. That equal sign is the pure poetry of it, the equation, elation, the metaphor. Things that don't seem remotely related are one and the other. Ah, and if we are each other, then surely alienation from each other and our earth is not possible. I reflect, poetry slow down, slowing down with you, that when we say we are like, then we say we like something, or like something on Facebook, like is four-fifths of a like, which is the quality of being pretty much the same. And I reflect that kin is three-quarters of kind, that we may be kind to that which is kin, that which is related, that which is alike. We may like and be kind to what is us. So, back to Emerson and his address to the Phi Beta Kappas of his day at Harvard Thoreau in the front row. Things must be sung. We have to hear things that sing themselves. If everything is alive, everything has a song. Everything is worthy of being sung. So we look around at our world, and suddenly, through this lens, it is singing. We hear it. It's not only everything is alive's Lewis, the can of cola, who breaks your heart. I still miss him and think of him, his idea that it is a blessing to be anything at all. And I think of the mutuality of all things. If we are interdependent and are each other, if the Mayan saying, you are my other me, rings true. I think of trees, which I've been driving through on Oregon's and California's coast. We know they are of value to us, giving us oxygen to breathe, wood campfires and tables and chairs and fixing soil for plants and erosion control and are hospitable to birds and mammals. I could go on 
and on. You have heard me on this show go on and on. We cannot live without trees. But on the other side of the equation is us. How are we necessary to a tree? Besides carbon dioxide, CO2, what is our role and purpose as a species? Okay, ultimately, we would nourish Earth. But besides as compost, what good are we? Literally, I put it to you, O poetry, slow down. What do we mean to the trees? And it may be that the answer is in and has always been in poetry, our way of seeing and valuing what is around us. In this case, trees. Our way of beholding a tree, that human act, brain act, imagination, maybe that's what we're for. I have a few examples of how we can think of this with fellow poetry thinkers. Good morning, starshine, to lead us along, my love and me as we sing our early morning singing song. First, in the category of humans who redeem humanity by their vision and treatment of other, in this case, trees, is David Willarch. He has created something called the Archangel Tree Project, perfect for these days of wonder, these December days. In his project, DNA from trees 3,000 years old are regenerated. This week, for example, the champion redwood trees of peace have been planted at the Presidio, which I was just at two hours ago. Volunteers planted 75 redwood saplings cloned by the Archangel Ancient Tree Archive from ancient coast redwood specimens, 3,000 years old, 35 feet in diameter. I was just driving through for the past 10 hours. They are creating a larger redwood grove, and the trees are cheering. Hear, hear. Humans are heroes. Humans see us. And how and why do humans see the trees and want to save them, for example? Or why do we see and want to save any objects in the universe? I would submit by slowing down in poetry and through that strange lens, that strange attractor for you physicists, we see and value the particles and data 
and fragments of this world, and through the poet's lens and heart and eyes, value it and want to preserve it. And maybe that is our purpose. Maybe that is why trees keep us around and keep us full of oxygen and a whole ecosystem, a whole stable universe, because our purpose is to see them, to extol them. This is a poem by Joyce Comer called Trees. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree, a tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast, a tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray, a tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Joyce Kilmer wrote this in 1914 as a minister, a dad, husband, and then went to World War I, as we now call it. At the time, it was never imagined that there would be more and our unthinkable wars would be reduced to numbers. And he died in battle in 1918. Having written this poem, many things emerged, including his own fame, rest stops in New Jersey named after him, whole forests preserved for him, schools and hospitals named for him, cities competing for the honor of who has the tree he is inspired by, his poems been set to music. There's also, writing at the same time period, E.E. E. Cummings, a poem for these holy days, Little Tree. Little tree, little silent Christmas tree, you are so little. You are more like a flower. Who found you in the green forest? And were you very sorry to come away? See, I will comfort you because you smell so sweetly. I will kiss your cool bark and hug you safe and tight, just as your mother would. Only, don't be afraid. Look, the spangles that sleep all the year in a dark box, dreaming of being taken out and allowed to shine. The balls, the chains, red and gold, the fluffy threads. Put up your little arms, and I'll give them all to you to hold. Every finger shall have its ring, and there won't be a single place dark or unhappy. Then, when you're quite dressed, you'll stand in the window for everyone to see and how they'll stare. Oh, but you'll be very proud. 
and my little sister and I will take hands and looking up at our beautiful tree will dance and sing Noel Noel it's E.E. E. Cummings little tree and we see in this poem he's doing everything is alive uh, for us um, he's not only giving voice and song to the little tree and showing us in the poem how and why to love it I will kiss your cool bark and he's going to be embracing this tree he's going to be hugging it and kissing it as a parent would a child in other words this is something that belongs to us this is kin and not just the tree is alive and has a song but the decorations we keep in a box all year the spangles dreaming of being taken out and allowed to shine you know every object on earth it has this value it's momentous the balls the chains red and gold the fluffy threads and so that is his poem then he has another one now all the fingers of this tree darling have it goes like this now all the fingers of this tree darling have hands and all the hands have people and more each particular person is my love alive than every world can understand and now you are and I am now and we're a mystery which will never happen again a miracle which has never happened before and shining this our now must come to then our then shall be some darkness during which fingers are without hands and I have no you and all trees are any more than each leafless it's silent in forevering snow but never fear my own my beautiful my blossoming for also thens until luminous tendril of celestial wish luminous tendril of celestial wish wine diminutive bright deathlessness to these my not themselves believing eyes adventuring enormous nowhere from querying affirmation virginal immediacy of precision more and perfectly more most ethereal silence through twilight's mystery made flesh dream slender exquisite white firstful flame new moon as by miracle of your sweet innocence refuted clumsy some dull cowardice called a world vanishes teach disappearing also me the keen illimitable secret
of begin. That's E. E. Cummings. I'll read us some of these lines again. Now all of the fingers of this tree, darling, have hands. So he's looking at this tree. And to say that it has hands, of course, we say a tree has branches, has limbs, perhaps, as we have limbs and arms. But the tree is a fellow body. And so he makes this explicit. He's looking around and connecting. He's doing E equals MC squared. Everything is alive. Now all the fingers of this tree, darling, have hands, and all the hands have people, and more. Each particular person is, my love, alive than every world can understand. And now you are, and I am, now. And we're a mystery which will never happen again, a miracle which has never happened before, and shining this, our now must come to then, our now shall be. And he goes on and talks about the darkness where we don't have hands, that we don't have each other, where our trees are leafless and silent. And this idea that, no, life is when we have voice, and hands and body and love each other, luminous tendril of celestial wish, and this idea of these believing eyes, these believing eyes. And he ends this, teach disappearing also me the keen, illimitable secret of begin. So E.E. Cummings Joyce Kilmer died in 1918, and in April of 1917, the First World War, now the U.S. is just becoming involved, E.E. E. Cummings volunteers for the Norton Harjais Ambulance Service in France. Ambulance work was a popular choice with those who, like Cummings, were pacifists. And he was stationed on the French-German border with a fellow American, William Slater Brown. They were friends. And what they were going to do uh, in their uh, service, they began to insert uh, these comments into their letters back home. Um, they were um, being dealt with by French censors and they were befriending the soldiers in their nearby units, and they were held in suspicion of treason uh, for these friendship, for these poetic letters. And they were sent to an internment camp in Normandy for questioning. They were housed in a large one-room holding area with other suspicious foreigners. And Cummings' father finally secured his release in December of 1917. Um, Brown was released the following April. And then in July of 1918, Cummings was drafted into the U.S. Army, and he spent another six months at a training camp in Massachusetts. And 
he was um, absolutely a person who fought for peace. And in this trauma of literal war, of violence upon humanity and the earth, Cummings is writing, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day for the leaping greenly spirits of trees. And thereafter, we can never look at trees again without thinking of them leaping greenly in a state of grace, beneficent, making us know how can anyone seeing, touching, feeling, tasting, lifted from the know of all nothing, being human, merely doubt, unimaginable you? And through the poet's eyes, not only trees, but their habitat of miracle are restored to us, made permanent and holy and grounded in spirit. I know it's not much, but it's the best I can do. My gift is my song, yeah, and this one's for you. Another example of how we see a tree as something to be sung, which sings itself, is a book, Little Tree, an uncommonly beautiful and subtle Japanese pop-up book about the cycle of life, which says no one notices such a small presence. And again, it's about a little tree. So in this form, we have a pop-up book, this interactive picture book by the Italian graphic designer, Bruno Bunari, who is writing. We have the graphic designer and book artist uh, from Japan, Katsumi Komagata, who, after his daughter was born in 1990, expanded his graphic design studio one stroke, and he began making these picture books, um, and Little Tree was released in 2008. And it's this story tracing the life cycle of a single tree. And it's really exploring the themes of life. And the story is told in Japanese and French and English. A different stage of the tree's growth enfolds as the story proceeds. It begins with the seedling poking through the snow. And he says, nobody, no one notices such a small presence. Be still here in the snow. Slowly, it grows into the recognizable shape of a tree and makes its way through the season. Shy leaves greet the world in spring. A lush crown bathes in summer sunshine and turns a warm yellow, then a glowing red as autumn embraces it. And 
The story of the tree goes on. A family of birds packs its nest, preparing to fly away for the winter. When winter descends, then the mood darkens and the story clouds cover the sky. The wind blows hard, almost breaking the branches. Sheets of rain fill the darkness. Be still here in the dark. And spring in the story returns and the whole cycle repeats and the tree grows tall enough to look around when at the beginning it was too small and everything was big. And in all of these ways, in children's books, in poems, in stories, in art, when we sing something else, when we hear the song that is sung, maybe this is our purpose, because doing these things keep us trying to preserve the habitat. And we have a great story by a poet who actually tries to use her poetry to save trees. Marianne Moore um, uh, is one of the poet saviors of one of the world's rarest and most majestic uh, trees. And in this story, we see that a tree can save a writer's life. Well, that's miraculous. But a writer can save a tree's life. That's also pretty magical. So, in 1867, Brooklyn's Prospect Park, which was once an American Revolution battlefield, opened the gates. And according to Maria Popova, brain pickings, this is a community hungry for a peaceful respite of wilderness amid the urban bustle. And we're all excited about this poetry slowdown because we're saying, 1867, yes, yeah, so much is going on uh, in terms of our efforts to be conscious of the environmental community of which we're a part. Um, in Brooklyn, people were so excited about having this park that they began donating wildlife to fill the park. It was 500 and 85 acres, and they were giving ducks and deer. And one of the gifts that they gave for this park was a tree donated by A.G. Burgess, and it was planted in 1872. And this is Ulmus glabra camperdowni. It was known as the Camperdown Elm. And why it was special, poetry slow down, is that it can't reproduce from a seed. Um, this is an elm that looks very strange. It has knobby branches that grow parallel to the ground. It's sort of weeping down. And it, so you could say it has a reproductive helplessness. It requires outside help, a kind of a grafting, uh, to live. And this can occur by nature or 
by a human hand. And how the species originated in the 1830s, the head forester of the Earl of Camperdown discovered a mutant branch of a Scots elm growing along the ground at Camperdown in Dundee, Scotland. Yes, Dundee, Scotland, we're thinking of John Muir. And he decided to graft this onto an ordinary Scots elm. And every single Camperdown elm in the world today now can be traced. Um, there's an unusual looking tree. That's this tree. It's a kind of a giant bonsai with weeping branches, a kind of ugly duckling that turned out to have the secret superpower because it's immune to the disease that killed all of its cousins, the Dutch elm, across North America. So it was able to survive. And unlike the world's oldest living trees, which are being preserved by our poet, botanist David Millarch in the Archangel uh, Project, um, they predate our civilization by thousands of years. But the Camperdown elm is this creature that was created by us, by humanity and nature. It's human-made, it's gloriously wild, it's got what Maria Popova calls barbaric-looking bark and defiant branches. It stands as a poignant metaphor for the interdependence of all beings, nowhere more so than in the story of the Brooklyn tree. And I'm thinking of Betty Smith here, who wrote, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. This was a very big deal. You can think of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. There's so much literature that is written about an, almost an elegy of Brooklyn and what trees mean in this urban environment. So the baby Camperdown elm is planted in Prospect Park on an elevated mound to give its branches room to clear the ground and everybody's excited about it. But over the years, it came to suffer neglect, and its branches were literally just being wept into the ground. And nobody was really that, that aware of that. But then, in the 1960s, um, this tree was saved, and it was saved the story goes not by a botanist or a park commissioner or policymaker, but by a poet, a poet, yeah, Marianne Moore, who lived from 1887 to 1972. And I love this story because she was elected president of New York's Greensward Foundation, an advocacy group for public parks, which was all involved in Central Park, which is really uh, intricately related to the effort to create our national parks and Yosemite National Park. So all of this will be revealed to us as something that happened in the civic imagination because of the reading of and the love of poetry. So this foundation in 1965 had Marianne Moore um, 
in love with this odd-looking tree. So she created a citizen group called Friends of Prospect Park, which was aimed at protecting the Camperdown Elm and the other endangered trees in the park. So she was 80 years old in 1967. She'd already won a Pulitzer Prize for poetry. And she wrote a poem called The Camperdown Elm, an ode to this tree. This is how it goes. The Camperdown Elm by Marianne Moore. I think in connection with this weeping elm of kindred spirits at the edge of a rock ledge overlooking a stream, Thanatopsis invoking tree-loving Bryant conversing with Thomas Cole and Asher Duran's painting of them under the filigree of an elm overhead. No doubt they had seen other trees, lindens, maples, and sycamores, oaks, and the Paris street tree, the horse chestnut. But imagine their rapture had they come on the Camperdown elm's massiveness and the intricate pattern of its branches, arching high, curving low in its mist of fine twigs. The Bartlett tree cavity specialist saw it and thrust his arm the whole length of the hollowness of its torso, and there were six small cavities also. Props are needed in tree food. It is still leafing, still there. Mortal, though, we must save it. It is our crowning curio. That's Marianne Moore. And this poem roused people to the effort to save the tree. And the group went on that she had formed to identify and salvage other vulnerable and neglected trees throughout her park, the Prospect Park. And in her will, Marianne Moore established a fund to protect Brooklyn's beloved crowning curio, this tree. And she died exactly 100 years after the Camperdown elm was planted. So today, people look at this tree and they're thinking of the poem that graced it. Mary Oliver has a poem, Pray. It doesn't have to be the blue iris, it could be weeds in the vacant lot, or a few small stones. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together, and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks, and a silence in which another voice may speak. This is Mary Oliver in her collection, Thirst, called Prayer. And Mary Oliver also has words as a poet about trees. When I am among trees, 
She has won National Book Award, the Poulter Prize. Uh, she's received honorary Doctor of Letters uh, degrees. And when she writes a poem, people listen. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locusts, equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness, I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, Stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into this world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. Mary Oliver. And I'm thinking about this idea of Ralph Waldo Emerson that as humans we need to to sing things that must be sung and things that sing themselves. We need to hear them. And she is identifying our human purpose to come into this world to do this, to love what's here, to honor it, to revere it, to be amazed, to be filled with wonder, in her words, to be filled with light and to shine. It's Mary Oliver. Like the tide at its end I'm at peace in the West. Dr. Chris Radcliffe, who's chair and professor of English, says that in this poem, Mary Oliver's persona claims that trees save her, but to be saved, she must open herself to the world. Her observation that the trees stir in their leaves models how to look deeper to imagine not leaves stirring in trees, but trees stirring in leaves. That its invitation to stay a while encourages her to pause and reflect on the bark that she sees, on the pulp that she does not, on the roots and soil that nourish the tree, all of which give life to the leaves. And her image the light flows from their branches, captures a moment of being when she recognizes the life force, the spirit that animates us all. That, in fact, I think poetry slowed down if Einstein is correct, e equals mc squared, that we all are animated uh, by a force and this is being uh, revealed by poems that we read that are fractals of wisdom, 
of our earth. Another example of a tree seer and a way humans are redeemed by our engagement with trees in the ways that we write about them, the way that we sing them and identify what sings itself, is this project in Australia and uh, it's a wonderful story that that I read about the city of Melbourne and I want to tell you about this story and it was originally reported by Olivia Harris Reuters and uh, this is how it goes. My dearest Olmos, the message began, as I was leaving St. Mary's College today I was struck not by a branch but by your radiant beauty you must get these messages all the time. You're such an attractive tree. And this is a letter of somebody who wrote to a green leaf elm, one of thousands of messages in correspondence between the people of Melbourne, Australia, and its city's trees. And this is the um, story. That the officials, the city leaders of Melbourne, Australia, gave trees ID numbers and email addresses in 2013 because they had a program designed to make it easier for citizens to report problems like dangerous branches, just the way um, in many cities you can report potholes and um, then they'll come immediately and try to fix the street. So here we had a chance to see um, if there were dangerous uh, branches. But what happened was that people, once they had the email address of the tree, they began to write to the tree. They would send greetings, uh, questions about current events, love letters, um, existential dilemmas and uh, some of these uh, letters and you can go online you can uh, read all of these but here's an example to Golden Elm Tree ID 1037148 21 May 2015 I'm so sorry you're going to die soon it makes me sad when trucks damage your low hanging branches. Are you as tired of all this construction work as we are? To Algerian Oak Tree ID 1032705 2 February. Dear Algerian Oak, thank you for giving us oxygen. Thank you for being so pretty. I don't know where I'd be without you to extract my carbon dioxide. I would probably be in heaven. Stay strong. Stand tall amongst the crowd. You are the gift that keeps on giving. We were going to speak about wildlife, but don't have enough time and have other priorities, unfortunately. Hopefully one day our environment will be our priority. And some of the messages to the trees have come outside of uh, Melbourne. And here's somebody who wrote from the U.S. to Oak Tree ID 1070546. How are y'all just saying how do? My name is Quercus Alba. Y'all can call me Al. I'm about 350 years old. 
and live on a small farm in northeast Mississippi, USA. I'm about 80 feet tall with a trunk girth of about 16 feet. I don't travel much, actually haven't moved since I was an acorn. I just stand around and provide a perch for local birds and squirrels. Have a good day, Al. So now we have this phenomenon of people around the world who are writing to these trees on behalf of other trees. So they are hearing the song, what sings itself, and they're singing the song itself. So I love this story, and Poetry Slowdown, you can write these trees, or you can begin to write trees in your own neighborhood. And that's what our poets do. Our poets look around, and they want to sing. Here's Greenleaf Elm Tree ID 1022165. To Willow Leaf Peppermint Tree ID 1357982. Hello, Mr. Willow Leaf Peppermint, or should I say Mrs. Willow Leaf Peppermint? Do trees have genders? I hope you've had some nice sun today. Regards. So we have this kind of human interaction with the world. Everything is alive e equals mc squared. And I Love this. So, there is an editor of The Atlantic, Adrian LaFrance, editor of TheAtlantic.com, senior editor and staff writer at The Atlantic, and she was the one reporting on this phenomenon uh, for us. Um, When people write the Western Red Cedar The trees I have loved do not have email addresses, but if they did, I might take the time to remark on the lovely crook of one question mark shaped branch and the softness of summer maple leaves dappling four o'clock sunlight onto my desk. So that was that article. And speaking of The Atlantic, the magazine that published the work of a man who dedicated his life to writing about trees and their songs in a bald effort to save them and thus save us, John Muir. He was what we today would call a botanist and geologist, and he certainly practiced these fields. But at the time, he was a person who tramped around beholding nature and giving it a voice, a song, because He read poetry, and reading Wordsworth, my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky, or I wandered lonely as a cloud through fields of daffodils. When he looked at a rainbow, when he looked at a daffodil, his brain fires up, and he's thinking of these words, and he's beholding the world in a different way way. Giving the world a voice and a song, he was so successful in giving voice to something, for example, that was seen as bored feet already dead 
in its only useful incarnation. He was celebrating trees as something precious and that we love as one of us, indeed kin, that when trees were threatened, as they were 24-7 in his day, cut down and uprooted, part of a wilderness defined as waste, he was asked by the Atlantic for a piece on trees that could speak on their behalf, that could sing them, that could bring to us how they sing themselves to lawmakers and civic leaders so that they would support having a national park, a preserve that would keep them alive. Thus, in 1897, he writes, The forests of America, however slighted by man, must have been a great delight to God, for they were the best he ever planted. The whole continent was a garden, and from the beginning it seemed to be favored above all the other wild parks and gardens of the globe. To prepare the ground, it was rolled and sifted in seas with infinite loving deliberation and forethought, lifted into the light, submerged and warmed over and over again, pressed and crumpled into folds and ridges, mountains and hills, subsoiled with heaving volcanic fires, plowed and ground and sculpted into scenery and soil with glaciers and rivers, very feature growing and changing from beauty to beauty, higher higher and in the fullness of time it was planted in groves and belts and broad exultant mantling forests with the largest most varied most fruitful and most beautiful trees in the world well that's the beginning of an article that goes on for hundreds and thousands of words about trees and for us, so we see from this language that we may have looked at them as, yeah, okay, get that down, you know, some useful kind of wood. But now these have been planted by God and the entire cosmic creation, the whole way that the earth was created, its geology over thousands and millions of years has created this forest and now we're looking at it differently and we're hearing that there's 500 species of trees all of them in some way useful to man and then he's going to be talking about them for many a century after the ice plows were melted nature fed them and dressed them every day working like a man a loving devoted painstaking gardener fingering every leaf and flower and bossy furrowed bowl bending, trimming, modeling, balancing, painting them with the loveliest colors, bringing over them now clouds with cooling shadows and showers now sunshine, fanning them with gentle winds and rustling their leaves. And when we see that, that they're useful to man, well, what we can learn is how we are useful to them. And this is how John Muir ends this article that is designed to be put into the hands of people in the White House and in Congress, um, the Cabinet, and in the hands of 
uh, citizens who are going to support legislation to have national parks. And he says that there was an act in 1878 where timber could be taken from public lands um, um, and, uh, you know, what could you do about it? And this is the Timber Culture Act. Settlers on the treeless plains got 160 acres each. And so he says, how can we plant forests? And um, one of the ways that he ends this article um, became sort of the anthem and the rallying cry for preservation of trees. And uh, this is what he finally um, says. And it's interesting because he's making a case for welcoming immigrants. The United States government has always been proud of the welcome it has extended to good men of every nation seeking freedom and homes and bread. Let them be welcomed still as nature welcomes them to the woods as well as to the prairies and plains. No place is too good for good men and there still is room. They are invited to heaven and may well be allowed in America. Every place is made better by them. Let them be as free to pick gold and gems from the hills to cut and hew, dig and plant for homes and bread. The ground will be glad to feed them and the pines will come down from the mountains for their homes as willingly as the cedars came from Lebanon for Solomon's temple. Nor will the woods be the worse for this use or their benign influences be diminished any more than the sun is diminished by shining. Mere destroyers, however, tree killers, spreading death and confusion in the fairest groves and gardens ever planted, let the government hasten to cast them out and make an end of it. For it must be told again and again, while protective measures are being deliberate liberated languidly. Destruction and use are speeding on faster and further every day. The axe and saw are insanely busy. Chips are flying as thick as snowflakes. And every summer, thousands of acres of priceless forests with their underbrush, soil, springs, climate, scenery, and religion are vanishing away while, except in the national parks, not one forest guard is employed. And so we said, that we have local laws and regulations, but it's really not working, and he ends. Any fool can destroy trees. They cannot run away, and if they could, they would still be destroyed, chased and hunted down as long as fen or a dollar could be got out of their bark hides, branching horns, or magnificent bull backbones. Few that fell trees plant them, nor would planting avail much towards getting back anything like the noble primeval forests. During a man's life, only saplings can be grown in the place of the old trees, tens of centuries old, that have been destroyed. It took more than 3,000 years to make some of the trees in these western woods, trees that are still standing in perfect strength and beauty, waving and singing in the mighty forests of the Sierra. Through all the wonderful, eventful centuries since Christ's time and long before that, God has cared for these trees, saved them from drought, disease, avalanches, and a thousand straining, leveling tempests and floods, 
but he cannot save them from fools. Only Uncle Sam can do that. Well, when he wrote that, it ended up in the hands of congressmen and presidents, and that really led to the uh, decision to have the Enabling Act, which preserved in 1890 millions of acres and ultimately to our national uh, parks. So we have all of these different examples of people who are writing about everything else, the other in our world, hearing its song and if, as if it has a song. And John Muir, one of our great examples of this, he loved trees, and I've been driving through the sequoias today, and this is what he says, Do behold the king in his glory, King Sequoia, behold, behold, the king tree and I have sworn eternal love. And if E equals MC squared, you know, if you are by other me, if kind is composed of kin, and love is the answer of what there is, and poems, words, give us insight into that connection that we have with them. So this is an example of ways that everything is alive for us to think about. Next week, we're going to be thinking about John Muir's birthday when we produce our show with our producer, Zappa, that Zappa Johns, will be reflected on the fact that it's the day that John Muir died surrounded by pages of his book in progress, Travels in Alaska, where he's talking about beholding the beautiful uh, light and making us think about all the aspects of this world, the rocks and the dust and the stars and the squirrels and everything we see as something precious. And Muir said, as long as I live, I'll hear waterfalls and birds and winds sing. So it's a song. Just as Emerson said, I'll interpret the rocks, learn the language of flood, storm, and the avalanche. I'll acquaint myself with the glaciers and wild gardens and get as near the heart of the world as I can. So that is a man who was raised on poetry. John Muir's words created a groundswell of support for our national forest to preserve them. We might save the earth with our poets, Marianne Moore, our posts. We may be earth's external hard drives in whom the wisdom necessary to go on will be preserved in our poems. Humanity may be an earthly hard drive for when earth crashes, we have all that we are and know through the poet. What Emerson, in his call for the poet, termed air lord, sea lord, landlord, the poet. So poetry slow down. I am thinking of you today as we near the week of Christmas and so many 
uh, earthly holy days when John Muir died of grief over the drowning of a valley. Can you love a valley? He loved a valley. The drowning of insects and rocks and trees and grasses. And if we want to know how and why we can matter in this world, it may be the extent to which we look around and appreciate what we see, what there is to see. And perhaps the extent to which we do this is what the world needs. And our ability to do this may be our reading of poems. Reading a poem, we can never look at earth the same way again. We can never treat it the same way again. We would fight for it as we would our own child because indeed we are all related. Everything is alive. Everything matters. Science says poetry embraces this truth and makes it live, makes it a flag we fly in our hearts. I have lived our time together until our next show, slowing down for the news you need. We celebrate our neighbor heroes, making trees felt seen and heard and redeeming us all with that encouragement who, after all, we matter utterly to our world because of how we see and listen to songs and sing the songs ourselves. Sincerely yours, Dr. B, with our producer, Zappa Johns, and Emerita producer, Sarah Hughes, and our whole Poetry Slow Down team. Slow down, because you know you move too fast. Dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep Let the morning time drop all its petals on me Life, I love you, all is groovy